everybody, Michael Antonovich with Swap Moto Live on this episode of the Midweek Podcast presented by Yoshimura R&D. Joining me for this one is Sean Hilbert, the president of Cobra Motorcycles. So for you that don't know, Cobra Motorcycles specializes in two-stroke minis and now an electric mini bike also with a emphasis on racing background. So Sean, you're the guy to give it the most information because you're the guy in charge. What is Cobra's uh, agenda and what are you guys doing right now? So to put it put it real bluntly, uh, our agenda is to design and manufacture, distribute, market uh, the finest youth competition motorcycles on the planet. And uh, we've got almost a 30-year track record of doing just that. Well, you've been in charge of the company since 2003, yep. um, came into it from a really good automotive engineering background. Mm-hmm. And for people that are watching this, they know that Bud started it in Ohio for his kids to have these really competitive mini cycles. So for everyone else though, what is the full 30 year backstory of Cobra motorcycles? Yeah. So you mentioned Bud, Bud Mamoni, uh, he's the founder of Cobra, super creative guy, uh, just a kind of a savant when it came to not just motorcycles, but all kinds of things. Um, his kid raced at a very high level, uh, Brent Mamoni. And in the early nineties, uh, they started pursuing, the national championship in in the 50 class and at that time um you know loretta lens was a thing uh and that class was kind of weird it had it was a mixture of some italian mini bikes ital jets and moto marinis and then the yamaha pw and um i think it was 1993 uh brent was leading the third moto about ready to win a national championship and I think he was on a Moto Marini at the time and the ignition system quit and he lost. He he uh, lost his chance to win the title. And uh, on the way out of the ranch that summer, Bud was, you know, thinking, all right, you know, what am I going to do here? I'm going to call Yamaha and see if they're willing to step up their game and make a competitive race ready uh, 50cc mini. And, and they didn't want anything to do with that. He talked to the Italian manufacturers. Hey, you know, I've got a list of things here that I'd like you guys to fix. Um, there's little interest in that. And so he basically threw his arms up and said, you know what, I'm just going to do it myself. Okay. So then I think that that is probably the most impressive thing about it. This one guy uh, mm-hmm. with the machinist background is just ready to take on the entire mini cycle contingent at the time. Because like you said, the Italians with the European bikes that would come over here and then that YZ, I mean, that's all it was there for a while. There was nobody that was making this. And then Bud's time and development on that first bike and what went into it. You know, I read a story today about the background just to get the approved 50 bikes that were there and just learning to build a motorcycle from scratch. It's pretty remarkable what he did as just a machinist with a racer of a son. Yep. Pretty remarkable. Uh, he And he used a lot of, you know, kind of existing components. He, he found an engine uh, from Italy that he ended up modifying quite a bit. Um, the chassis was pretty much his. The plastic was a little bit his, but mostly from a company called Malaguti. Uh, wheels were purchased. You know, he he basically did what he had to do to create a bike that was ready to go racing with. And and all the other bikes were essentially recreation models that uh, the, the the parents had to you know make work. And uh, so he came he came to the track in 1994 with a bike that was well superior of the competition and he uh he you know learned about homologation he learned what he had to do to homologate it it was 50 units at the time it's more than that now but it was 50 units at the time and uh he thought he had all his 
bases covered. Brent won the championship that first year. And then kind of all hell broke loose. Uh, parents protested. The AMA wasn't sure that that was the right thing. The Coombs family wasn't sure that that was the right thing to do. Um, and they ended up taking the title away from Brent. And it was months. Uh, Bud had to, you know, produce paperwork. He had to produce invoices for buying enough parts. You know, I, I still remember seeing an invoice from Bill's pipes that, that yeah, he produced uh, or, he, you know, he bought 55 or 60 pipes or something like that, enough over the homologation number to convince the powers that be that um, uh, that it was uh, that it was legit. And a couple months later, the title got handed back to Brent. Um, Dave Coombs Sr. ended up driving from West Virginia up to Youngstown, Ohio, to personally apologize to Bud. And the kind of the rest is history. The the Yamaha class um, was separated off. So the shaft drive class, which has been there since the beginning, is now its own class. And the 50cc 7 to 8 class was born, made official. Um, Cobra was the first entry. And uh, and then Hot on its heels, you know, KTM came out with a bike. And then within, literally within about seven or eight years, there was, um, an, I think, nine different brands that, uh, that that were vying for a spot on the starting gate at Loretta Lens. You know, as a lifelong race fan, um, especially to grow up in racing and see it all. So he's especially now as an adult, too, it's mind blowing to see the competitiveness of some families, like when they know that their kid's pretty good or they're very interested in it and the lengths that they'll go through. So I know yeah. that that's there for so many families that show up to Loretta's or qualifiers or just local races. Uh, but it's always really cool to hear about, you know, how one family can get an idea and bite onto it and then just make this whole new, I mean, category for, for many cycle racing that so many other people have now latched onto as well, but then for them to stay in it rather than just, uh, kind of peter out when his kid gets too big or decides not to race for you guys to then take it over in 2003. What was that transition like and what has led to the growth over these last 20 years? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, and, and by the way, that class that he created, it's now, depending on the year, it's now typically the third most popular class at Loretta Lens. There's a couple of C class, like 250C is bigger um, maybe 250B is bigger, but they're they're within the top three classes in that whole Loretta Lens class structure. Uh, the number of entries in the 50cc senior class is right at the top of the heap, and it's it's amazing to see what the growth has done over the years in that class. Um, but back you know, to, to that point, then sorry to interrupt. I yeah. think that that class also though might be the most introductory class for like a grandparent or a mom that wants to see it because when they see these kids in that category and they see what they're capable of and that they're pretty safe you know everyone jokes about the bobblehead class but when you see a gate full of little kids that are out there and they get through it safe and they look like they're having a great time and you see all the memories that the families build not only is it the biggest introduction to racing for the kid but it's the whole family getting into it yeah it it is a family affair for sure and you're right um you know, I often talk every once in a while, you know, I'll go to a local track meeting and and somebody's complaining about the 50 class. And I'm like, um, maybe the 250 B class, maybe the kid comes alone. Maybe he brings his girlfriend. Uh, how many, you know, how many hot dogs do you want to sell? How many gate entries do yeah. you want to sell on a given weekend? Because you've got grandma and grandpa and brother and sister, mom and dad, racer. Um, it's a big deal for the sport. It makes a big impact financially on the promoters and on just the entire sport in general. 
Mm -hmm. I think people that are watching this know, like I have a little guy that's a year and a half. So I know I'm like four years away from all the stuff that I'm going to do. You know, I don't know if at that time, if I'm going to be changing as many clutches as some fifties go through, you know, now to make him good. But like you said, just the demo that goes along with it. I mean, that is a whole product line for replacement parts, for new gear, for specialty sizes. People know how fast kids go through tennis shoes to see how much they go through boots and helmets in a year has got to be pretty wild too. Yeah, they grow out of helmets, boots, and bikes. Uh, unfortunately, they grow out of bikes. That's uh, that's our, our customer base turns over every few years, as you pointed out. So uh, uh, it's tough. It's tough from a from a marketing standpoint, from a brand management standpoint, to realize that a lot of the families that come into the sport, it's you know, I I, I don't know the number, but I wouldn't be surprised if it were fifty percent of the families that come in motocross didn't have any prior motocross experience. The kid. You know, the, the kid and his dad or the kid and his mom were, were watching NBC Sports on Saturday afternoon or to see the X Games or something, something gets the whole ball rolling. And um, and there it goes. And it's amazing, even at the very top level of the sport, um, riders like, you know, racers like Adam C. and Cirillo, I mean, they he saw a Supercross, Adam saw Supercross on TV when he was five years old. Dad, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. And dad had no idea what motocross was um we've got families in the sport right now in the same boat and it always amazes me to learn how few of those folks how few of the 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 parents actually raced or were even riders when they were younger um so it's a it's a big job that we have to introduce these families to the sport to make it a welcoming environment and to basically create you know customers for the rest of the industry for many many years to come so after this year's uh, Loretta Lens incident where it got so muddy and they were running the 50s at the end of the day, yeah, you know, and, and doing what they had to do, I know everybody had a little bit of skin of the game, some people more than others, and a lot of money on awesome. the line. That was awesome, by the way, what, what MX Sports pulled out. Mm-hmm. Um, the, parents, uh, the parents wanted it badly. I don't know if they knew exactly what they were going to get themselves into yeah. um, when they were asking for all three motos, but boy, they, uh, they pulled that rabbit out of the hat for sure this year. I, I, I hold, I hold what they did in high regard getting all the races in. And I think that exactly to that point, that shows the connectivity of these families that you guys are working with, like until up until this point, why would I think that there's this whole 50 CC family racing network on Facebook where all these people are coordinating and talking to each other. And these are all the people that are talking about how they buy your bikes and what they do to make them faster. Or when they're at the track and they know, hey, such and such has went through these already and his kids did out of it. I need to go buy his overstock of parts. Like Mm -hmm. we did that with a family I knew growing up that was a Cobra family, you know? So it's like you said, getting them into it and the little inner social circles that come from just one category of motorcycle it's pretty amazing. And then you look at everything else that happens with the company. It, it's remarkable to see what one group can do. So that's why I really like getting on the phone with you guys is to hear why you guys are into moto racing like that. So to go to that point, a few questions ago, 20 years ago, you guys get the chance to take over Cobra. How did that come to be and what made it so intriguing to you? Yeah. So it came to be, um, through, through, I guess through my and my business partner Phil McDowell, our 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 love of moto and motorcycles. Um, I was kind of a, a lost kid, uh, grew up in a in a split household, um, and when I was young, I was you know I was kind of lost. And my dad was a a rider and a racer, but he never pushed it on me. He he grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, 
was one of Dick Mann's riding buddies back in the day. And, oh. and um, just, you know, he, he had a passion for two wheels. Uh, but I kind of, if my memory serves me right, I kind of developed it, you know, on my own. I, I remember watching Evil Knievel and watching, uh, watching some races. I went to a, a pro national, I guess maybe that's where my dad came in. He took me to a pro national. I was probably seven years old. Um, here in Michigan, I watched Marty Smith win the 125 class. It was just uh, that day was the, you know, maybe the transformational day for me in terms of uh, just knowing uh, what I loved to to do and to think about. And so motorcycling really changed my life. Um, I was, you know, I was uh, not a very aggressive kid, but but getting into racing a few years into it, all of a sudden I was a changed person. I knew I knew that very few people in my School, for example, uh, a few raced, a few did very well at racing, but very few people, you know, could take something that big on. And that allowed me to kind of grow, grow quickly and and understand um, myself a lot better than I, I would have otherwise. So I took that through high school, took it through college, um, and I ended up uh, spending a few years at Ford. I went back to school after that and and the whole time there i put a business plan together on what the next generation of power sports business might look like um to me it had to look a lot like uh dell computer where you could order you know whatever you wanted on your computer well why isn't the motorcycle industry that way why why can't you order suspension uh set up for you why can't you order um you know an anodized package or or whatever color plastic you want on the bike much like the auto industry was set up similar though to Dell and how and how they did mass customization. That's what the industry calls it is mass customization. So put the business plan together. I started shopping it around to various venture capital and private equity groups. We ran into a group in Cleveland that really loved us. Um, and they basically said, we love you guys. We love your ideas. There's no way in heck we're ever going to fund a startup. You guys go find a business to buy. And at that time, uh, Phil McDowell, my business partner was like, you know, um, Cobra has this open house going on next week. I think I'm just going to go to it and talk to, talk to Bud. And very quickly, the conversation went to, you know, are you guys for sale? And Bud basically said, yeah, I'm, I'm exhausted. Uh, I'm a one man show here. I'm kind of running out of, uh, running out of capabilities. I'm looking for good engineering. I, we need to take it to the next level. I'm interested. And so we spent a couple of years putting a deal together. And in 2000, November, 2003, we closed and uh, the rest is the rest. We've been, we've been at it ever since. There's been plenty, plenty of ups and downs uh, since then. Um, but, uh, but it's been, it's been a good ride upward since that day. Oh, I can, you know, in the last 15 years that I've been involved in the power sports industry, right when I came along was when the lead ban was going to happen and all of mini bikes were getting ripped. Like, yeah, for you guys, I can only imagine what that was like to be waiting there at the 11th hour, you know, wondering what are they going to do? And, and is my entire future here going to be yeah. hinging on something and, and everything else that goes along with it. But I will say these last three years for a lot of reasons that we know have been tremendous and we've seen a lot of growth in power yep. sports market. And you guys have had a lot of growth all over the world. Uh, looking at your website, Europe has been a big sector. And then South America is huge. Uh, that's something that I've learned through the last few years is just how into motorsports they are down there. And for you guys to get some developing kids down there and get it going. I mean, yep. where are some of the places that you see as thriving right now? Um, back to the lead law, real quick. We weren't waiting. 
uh, I took 13 trips to Washington. DC. Okay. <laughs> um, and if it weren't for a few people that, that kind of caught, you know, caught on to our, our mission, so to speak, um, MX sports was, was one of those groups. Um, Tim Cotter, uh, Rita, Carrie, Joe, Davey, and then Rob Dingman at the AMA, those folks, if it weren't for that core group, uh, there, there would be very little mini bike racing, if any, right now going on. Um, the, the legislation was horrifically bad and, uh, and motorcycling was the only market segment not to, to be basically granted the exemption. And that was because several of us went, went to Washington, DC many times, even Amy, Amy Ritchie from Redbud joined one time just to, just to kind of, you know, help out, do whatever we could do to make, make sure that we still had a sport and an industry left. But, uh, but that said, you're right. The last three years have been, have been pretty darn good. Um, we've been, you know, we've been growing dramatically. Uh, we are a global company. We need to be more global. Our biggest export markets are Australia and Canada. Um, but then you're right. Uh, South and Central uh, America are are big collective markets, but they're made up of a lot of very small markets. Um, mm -hmm. Peru and Ecuador and Venezuela and Chile and Argentina are, are all, you know, huge moto places um, in terms of the fan base. Uh, but the customer base isn't huge. And the rules and regulations in every one of those countries is different. And so we uh, we make our way and we sell a lot of motorcycles down there each year. In fact, uh, the Mini O's is coming up here um, in in a month or so. And uh, we're already being contacted by a lot of South Americans. It's, it seems to be a destination race for anybody in South America that wants to come up and see what U.S. motocross is all about. So a lot of people are looking to borrow bikes, rent bikes, do whatever they can do to be on a Cobra that week. That's pretty cool to hear. Um, you know, and what you're saying for all these people that are coming, I've been lucky to go down, down to Australia a couple times to go see the World Supercross down there. And yeah, the thing so that impresses me the most about the Australian fans, you know, we hear the stories of like Chad Reed coming here and everybody after them up to the Lawrence Brothers now and how difficult it is. But uh, when I get down there and I see how much not only bikes and parts are and how they are to come by, but just how much a t-shirt for a moto company is and, and how into the, that into it, they are that they'll spend all of that extra to buy that product. And I can only imagine it's the same in South and Central America. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's the people that you guys want and to capture that market and know, Hey, we have something that's there for them. We have these channels to get them that stuff. And we're always here to help them get connected on the resources when they do finally come to the United States. That's a pretty cool program to have. Yeah, and, and it 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 goes to show, I, I guess it it highlights a difference in Cobra than than the other OEMs, and that is we're willing, we are willing, and we're still of a scale where we can do this, thankfully, but we're willing to reach out and and uh, basically touch individual customers and and do whatever it takes at that level. So, mm -hmm. um, if an individual customer calls us, you know, a lot of times we'll 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 hook up with one of our dealers and 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 make it happen. Um, sometimes it's just us working through the factory to make sure that, that a kid from a different country that's coming here to race has the best, most fun week of their life. You know, when they get here, we want the bike to work perfectly. We want them to have fun. And, uh, and those kind of opportunities, um, are few and far between, I guess, but they're, they make a big mark on the brand and, and how we're viewed internationally. Okay. I was on the website earlier today. 
and I was playing around on the dealer locator. So you guys have hundreds within the United States and, you know, dozens more around the world. But how is that dynamic to to build with them? Because the market plan that you, you know, go with, the business plan that you come up with to custom make motorcycles is great in its own way. And you have all these people that are supporting it. But do you have the same challenges that you have with dealers of, well, this guy's only going to be interested in it for maybe 10 or 12 years while his kids are into it? Or is it pretty easy that once they're into it, they're into it for life? So our dealer network is changing dramatically or has changed dramatically over the past, I would say, five years in particular. Um, we have this this, uh, this this saying that that used to be a, a kind of a harsh reality, but it was a reality nonetheless, uh, that we had regular dealers and then we had daddy dealers and you, and you, <laughs> you know you kind of you kind of nailed it there uh, the daddy dealers are are in it for a few years and then they're out and as we grow and as we become more sophisticated uh our, our dealer base has shifted dramatically to to a more sophisticated dealer as well um that said the dealers that that we perform the best with and perform the best with us are what I consider off-road boutique dealers. So they're not, they don't have, you know, five lines of motorcycle and, and side-by-side sitting there. The, the, I call them plate glass dealers, the dealers with all the plate glass in front of the thing. And they, you walk in and there's, you know, three salesmen milling around and there's a traditional service department. And we, we do very poorly in that model of dealer. Um, old, old, old school, you know, if, if I think of, you know, when I was a kid, you know, the, the Will Smith Mako in, in, um, in LA and, um, and, and some of these places that, that were truly off-road boutiques, they still exist, believe it or not. There are mm-hmm. still, there are still dealers out there that I, I, I say have a, a small footprint. They have a, you know, they have small brick and mortar presence and they have a big trailer that they go to the race with every weekend. Mm-hmm. And those are the dealers that we excel at and they excel with us they you know we the, the the amount of bikes that we sell through some of these guys are are staggering and we wouldn't be there we wouldn't we wouldn't be as successful as we are today if we only had a traditional dealer body to sell through okay so then you know i really like going back to the business plan that you came up with on following the dell model and making it custom to everything rather than getting a bike stock and then going through all this part list of I want this, this, and this, mm-hmm. you know, we joke about now because the factory editions are so popular and that's kind of the same thing, but it's different. But beta is doing a really cool job because they do the same thing yep. for all their full size bikes. Yep. And, you know, I mean, I think that's the ultimate racer wish is that I could just build this, 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 and this, because I know that I've done it on like dream gear sets or things that I want to. Mm-hmm. So yeah. with that, like, what are families learning and and what are some of the offerings that you guys have? Because there's so much to get into on pipes, suspension, handlebars, this, this, and this. Yeah. So it's interesting. We have, uh, we have two different markets that we deal with right now. Um, we have the market for, I would call the 50 CC class of bikes, right? That's our, that's our senior level bike, our junior level bike, some variants that we have on those two bikes, and then even our new e-bike. Those classes are considered, and, and they're really the only classes in all of motocross at both the national level and the amateur level, and that's the key distinction, where it's limited rules only. So there's a lot of, uh, there's there's 
uh, a lot of barriers to throwing on a different pipe or or you know modifying the cylinder or doing anything like that you can't do that so mm -hmm. that's a very different marketplace for us and what we've learned over the years is that our customer the customer that is you know the the, the wide open family that is that is you know motocross to the core they want to buy the bike that's fully adorned with everything right from the get-go and when we launched our factory what we call our factory works edition. Um, it's not just a factory edition, it's a factory works edition. Okay. Um, that's a joke. Uh, when we launched that bike a few years ago, we thought, oh, you know, the take rate on it is gonna be maybe 25%, maybe 30%. The take rate on it is like 95%. And, oh, really? and so um, what we learned is that is that uh, all of our customers want everything. They want, they want it decked out to the full extent. Um, and that works in the 50 class because that, you know, that bike is that they basically have to race it except for maybe tailor fitting suspension to their needs. Um, they're going to race the bike right off the showroom floor. Uh, 65 class is different. You know, that, that yes, you do have limited class rules at the nationals and at Loretta Lens, uh, but every single local track around the country on any given Saturday or Sunday is running just run what you brought, right? As long as it's 65 cc's, you're legal, you can go. And we're trying to learn actually in that marketplace what the customers may want in terms of in terms of uh, personalization and customization. Okay, I'm in complete agreement with you on those parents that want to buy everything for their kid because I always thought that was a joke. Like, I know my mom and dad took care of me, you know, but then when I had my guy and it was time to buy him his first Strider, I only wanted the factory edition Strider that had the number plate and the crossbar and all that. And I was like, okay, so I get it. So to hear that it's a 90, 95% take rate on this little factory, factory works edition 50. It's very cool to hear. And like people should, uh, people should know that for sure. Yep. Okay. We, we also, uh, this year, we also homologated a, um, a uh, anniversary edition bike that that really okay. it, we had fun with it. We we um, basically took the 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 effect or the 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 look of the bike from 1994 and tried to pull it forward into 2024. Um, and I think it turned out really beautiful. It, we 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 used all the old logos, we used the old color schemes, and um, even right down to how the number plates look. And uh, it turned out beautiful. It's a it's a fun bike, and and uh, we're selling plenty of those too. Okay, that's a good. I kind of transition back to this next question that I have because you bring in the 1994 bud getting thing going, and like you mentioned, finding component suppliers along yeah. the way. Um, with you guys in the production model that you're in now, I mean, it says like 80 percent of the bike is manufactured in the United States. It's all assembled in Michigan. Yep. But how do you find these partners as a component supplier? that want to make mini bike wheels or mini bike radiators or handlebars. How do you find that? What do they see of the market? And then how do you maintain that relationship for 20, 30 years? Yeah, great, great question. Because uh, it's a very different scenario today than it was in 2003 or even 2010. Okay. Um, I mentioned, you know, Bud bought quite a bit of of the bike uh, back in the day, right? The core engine was purchased, which he modified. Um, wheels were purchased, brakes were purchased, plastic was purchased. He did the chassis, which was, you know, maybe maybe that with some engine modifications, that was really what set the bike apart from, from its competitors. Um, 
Today, however, it's a completely different scenario. And and uh, one of the things we realized early on was that um, our volumes aren't big. You know, we we have we have what I call a hyper niche market, and I can't just knock on Showa's door, for example, and say, "Hey, we're going to do a new bike, and and we need some forks." Um, they're they're not interested in our volumes, and and moreover, if they had something that was off the shelf um, that we could use, more often than not, that's not a competitive component. It's mm-hmm. it's a uh, it's it's mass maybe, produced. Yeah, it's mass produced. It's maybe maybe out of date, mm-hmm. um, and what we realized in terms of what we needed to do in order to be ultimately competitive to have the very best youth competition motorcycle in the world we needed to uh what i call vertically integrate around those components and so rather than going out and searching for component suppliers we searched for engineering capability that would allow us to do things like design and build our own brake systems design and build our own suspension systems we're even building our own and designing our own electric motors now for for our electric products um, if we're going to be on the cutting edge, we can't use the same stuff everybody else is using. It's just that simple. And so, um, you, you, you know, you hit on earlier a, an important thing, and that is how do you how do you look at this marketplace and um, and design a bike for kids that's at the very highest level? You mentioned offline. You know, you can't just scale down. That doesn't yeah. work. And you're exactly you're exactly right. There's a couple of reasons. One is that kids and adults, you know, don't necessarily scale um, ergonomically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned bobbleheads, right? The kids, kids' heads are big compared to the rest of their body, and their, their, you know, their their arms are are skinny, and all those things that they're just not formed like a full size adult. So you have to take that into consideration. The other thing that we take into consideration that might not be uh, that might not be completely um, uh, clear from the outset, and it wasn't for us. And that is the tracks that the kids are riding on, for the most part, are tracks that are um, that are formed by a big bike, right? So all the big bikes are on the track. The whoop, the whoop spacing is a great example. Whoop spacing is dictated by the wheelbase of big bikes, which is all essentially the same. I don't care if you're on a 125 or a 450, the wheelbase is roughly the same. And so Things like whoop spacing, when you when you ride a little bike on a track that's ripped up by by a big bike, we we used to call it teeter tottering. I mean, the bike would go, it would it rather than absorbing anything, the bike was just teeter tottering down the track as it was, you know, as its short wheelbase was trying to traverse these whoops that were set up by big bikes that have a long wheelbase. And so we completely rethought suspension design and how how a little bike has to absorb. Um, low, relatively low frequency bumps on a track that's ripped up by a big bike. So th- those are the kind of things that we put into the design of our bikes over the years to make them superior. So like you said, vertically integrating everything that and to the suspension on how bikes work, I mean, this fully works in line with a guy like you that has a mo- an automotive engineering background and the education that you have and all of the other people that work at Cobra to do that because now you guys, A, you get a whole problem that you get to take on, what a fun challenge, and B, you get to make all the resources in-house to tackle it rather than supply and demand, try to figure out who's gonna do this, can this work, how far can we change something that somebody else is making? 
I mean, I think that's unbelievable. And to keep doing it just as a machine shop, I, I mean, I think that that just shows what you guys still are at the core because you have a lot of projects on the plate, but to always like, oh yeah, we could do this. We could make this better by taking this project on. I mean, that's the full racer dream right there is to do it all in one stop. We have, over the years, we've added just tremendous capability. Not not only do we have some of the best power sports engineers, technicians, designers in the entire planet here. Um, granted, we're, you know, for now anyway, we're focused on little bikes, but these these guys and gals are incredible. And not only do we have that, but we've built over the years cap- capabilities. You mentioned machine shops. So we you know, we have a large machine shop here of, of all kinds of different CNC equipment um, that, that we use to manufacture our products. We have a CNC department that's just focused on tooling and prototyping. And then we've invested millions of dollars into um, what's called additive manufacturing, or, or in the past, it was called 3D printing. I guess it still is in some circles. But, you know, we we create parts out of metal and plastic that require no tooling that, that you know, we we print essentially. And um, not just for prototyping, but we do that for tooling. We do it for some production parts, especially when we need to get a product to market very quickly. Um, our new electric bike has several parts that are that are printed, and not with you know not with your hobby level 3D printer, but with you know literally half a million dollar machines that the part looks like an injection molded part when you bolt it on the bike, and that's not going to be the part that stays on the bike forever. We'll we'll make a tool, you know, we'll make an injection mold, for example, to replace that more expensive printed part. But that gets us to market that much faster. And it also allows us to learn from the marketplace. Hey, the rider's boot's catching on that corner a little bit. Let's change it, you know, and we can do that. We can take a few bites of that apple uh, before we actually spend the big money in tooling to, to make the injection molded part. So there's so many things we're doing and so many capabilities that we've added over the past decade that allow us to move really fast, really creatively. And, and that's really our core advantage over our competition. So you guys have the factory in uh, Hillsdale, Michigan. And what I think is pretty cool, if, they, yep. if people get in contact with you, they can come actually see all of this in person. I think that that's absolutely pretty remarkable. Um, you know, I've been really fortunate to see how some of the things in our industry are made from, you know, FMF pipes to gear, to tires, to boots, to, uh, you know, reed valve injections and stuff like that. But yep. to see what you guys are doing as a full-scale start-to-finish shop is pretty impressive. Uh, you mentioned the e-bike a couple of times, and we're going to have to spend some time on that because, I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's going to be huge. But there's two things that I'd like to point on on the manufacturing and the R&D before we get to that. The first thing is, you know, like you guys have mentioned, you're all engineers. You all uh, know the numbers and the data, and you have the how and the why of the design that you make of, of how it should work. But it not you that's on the bike. You have to rely on like a seven or an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old or someone in that capacity. How is that challenge to learn from them? Because like, I know that there's some really sharp spot on test rider kids that know everything that's happening. And there's other kids Mm -hmm. that are just going to pin it. And there's other parents that see things and other, you know, it's the whole gamut. How do you identify with these kids that know what they're doing and process that information to make the bike go forward? Yeah, it's tough. Um, our test riders have early bedtimes, they've got homework, they get grounded. Uh, it's, it, it can be difficult. Um, so a couple of things. One is we always kind of keep, um, a parent kid or several parent kid combinations in our back pocket, uh, that we know are going to generate really good feedback. 
And uh, and we learned that over time, you know, uh, uh, doesn't take too many phone calls between our chief engineer and a parent that kind of knows what they're doing um, and, and a kid that can kind of give the right feedback to their parent to, uh, to, to, to let us understand that, yep, that's family we want to work with. And we feed them parts and assemblies and, and, uh, ideas. And, and we rely on those families heavily over the course of a development year. Um, the other thing we do is, is, uh, is, you know, taking a page out of a lot of what pro racing is doing these days and what automotive has done for decades. And that is really high end, hardcore data acquisition, you know, just instrumenting a bike completely. It can be, you know, on an engine, it can be, uh, temperatures, it can be wheel speed. It can be, uh, it, we can instrument the frame up to, to understand frame flexure and stress. Uh, we can instrument the suspension up to understand what, what kind of forces and what kind of, uh, uh, shaft velocities, a shock or a, or a fork is going through mm -hmm. um, on any given on any given track condition. So, I think it's a really it, just like big bikes. It's a combination of hard data and subjective feedback. And we, we have a few areas that we need to be extra careful of. First of all, kids. You know, you mentioned it. A lot of times, nine times out of ten, the kids just riding the bike and and uh, th their ability to ride the bike and understand what's going on underneath them. Um, there's not many kids that are really good at that kind of feedback. And then furthermore, the other thing we have is the the authority figure issue. And that is you go up to a eight or nine year old kid and you say, hey, how did it go? You're an authority figure. They don't want to tell you that it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we have to work through all that. And that's where instrumentation comes in. Cool. Okay. Um, I, we mentioned this earlier, but I didn't say this on the record. Um, I kind of maybe did, but you guys don't run an assembly line. You worked at Ford for a while. Like you said, you were on the automotive floor of where everything came together. Yep. Why do you guys decide to do it where one person puts all the components together rather than sending it through a list of different people? Yeah. Um, for a bit of time at Ford, I was, uh, I was in charge of an assembly line and um, I had it was 130 people. Uh, their jobs sucked. They they had 50 seconds to put in seven screws. And um, as the book Rivet had said, you know, I learned how to do my job in 40 seconds. And then I spent the next 15 trying not to go insane. Mm -hmm. And I did not want that kind of working atmosphere for, for anybody that, that worked for Cobra. Um, and so I did some benchmarking. And, and one of the interesting things at the time when we were just getting started was Harley Davidson um, had a traditional assembly line for their Sportster in Milwaukee. And then in York, PA, where they also made the same bike, they had a team build where they had three people that followed the bike from beginning to end. And I knew a guy in operations at Harley at the time and uh, and asked, you know, for big pay. I was tried to stay away from any confidentiality issues, but my question was essentially, is the assembly line in Milwaukee a lot more efficient than the team build in York, PA? And the answer was, no, it's not. And in fact, there's many advantages from a quality standpoint uh, with the team build that we don't we don't see on the assembly line. And that really got me thinking. I was like, all right, we can we can do this. We can create meaningful work for folks where their their span of control and their span of responsibility is big and we rely on them big every day 
and they have some meaning to their job. And, and that was really important to me when we designed our our work system that we would have folks that took responsibility from something. And it's not just an entire bike. It could be an entire engine or an entire suspension system or an entire set of brakes. Um, they're not involved just in one or two pieces of the operation, but they're involved, you know, end to end in something. And, and that's super critical from my perspective, because I lived, I lived the alternative, which just was not humane work as far as I was concerned. I like that. I like that a lot. I think that um, I think that that's what's cool to hear about, you know, the more that I've I read a lot about the company over the weekend, you know, like I said, but then to hear it straight from you and see what your experience is and what you take from biz, big business and you scale it down to what you guys are doing and you make it work for you. I mean, that's the dream. And then to have you guys have a rad looking little test track that's right there in Michigan. It looks like an awesome little place. Uh, you guys are, I think I have to make a trip to come up and see it either around the Detroit Supercross and take that tour or maybe just make the Ooh. drive up because I, I want to see this stuff. It's just, that's mm -hmm. a treat that you guys have it open like that and the how and the why. So we got about 10 minutes left. And I think that this is like probably the biggest topic and save it for last is the e-bike. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been a pretty big uh, proponent of them for a while. I had an Alta for quite some time. I thought that mm -hmm. thing was great. Uh, mm -hmm. I rode the Stark a few weeks ago. It's just as much fun. Um, the things that the electric motocross bikes have done for me, I, I've talked about all the time. They made me a better rider in a lot of ways, and they took a lot of uh, challenging things out that when I did get back on my YZ252 stroke, I could do those better. Hmm. You guys know that uh, the E-demand is coming. You go, you know all of the perks of like, hey, if a family has a little backyard track in their neighborhood, they can ride there. But what is it about e-bikes right now for people you know, there's still going to be people that are skeptics, but for you as a guy that's making this happen, like what's it like and, and what's the mission statement? Yeah, uh, the mission statement for us on the e-bike, it's uh, it's maybe twofold. On the customer side, it's we want to introduce this sport to a whole group of people that might not have been comfortable jumping on an IC engine bike. Um, maybe kids, you know, coming off a, a, a Strider or or a Stasic, um, families that are maybe more suburban than they are um, than they are rural, and they just don't know if they can take that next step and go racing or not. But guess what? We kind of have a decent sized backyard. We're not going to piss the neighbors off. Um, I'm not. I don't have to develop a whole new school a skill set to go work on this bike. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of just like the Stasic we just got off of. I'm going to give it a go. Yep. And so our goal with the e-bikes uh, from a customer standpoint is grow the market, make a very comfortable landing spot for families that may or may not have been willing to take the full dive into, into the moto world otherwise, and make it easy, you know, just make it easy to maintain, make it easy to, to, to go practice on, um, make it easy to have fun. And so that's a big, that's why I think, honestly, that's why I think the electrification thing has a more firm footing uh, in the mini bike market than it actually does in the in the Alta or Stark world. Uh, there's good reasons there too, but but I think there's a lot of reasons. And another big one is is the ability of parents to meter out performance a little bit at a time. Um, I was one of the first experiences I had uh, with Cobra was um, family we knew in Michigan here was hey we're gonna you know get a get a Cobra for junior. He's, he's just riding the wheels off this PW right now. So 
we took the cobra out to the track the kid was on his pw he's dragging the pegs he's doing all these you know things like whoa like you know that kid's good he's really good <laughs> hopped on the cobra scared the living daylights out of him the, the transition from a pw to a cobra is huge and and there was nothing in between it was it was like you know it's like you know turning on a waterfall or something so uh i think the ability for kids to you know migrate up through performance levels is going to be really good for for maintaining their interest in the sport we have a an old dealer of ours and his saying used to be you guys are really good at making baseball players and what he was what he was alluding to is the fact that that the performance of a full-blown race bike is is high and the performance of a play bike is relatively low and that transition is difficult well guess what our electric bike is 99% of the performance of our gas bike on the high end and and it's less than a PW at the low end and so um that, that making that transition is a big deal so that's that's the that's the customer reason the market reason we went that direction was pretty simple and that is within 5 years there's going to be entire countries in Europe where we're not going to be able to sell a bike where they basically said no more internal combustion engines for anything and so we're reading the writing on the wall from a regulatory standpoint and just thinking you know what it's time to jump into this thing because we need to start flexing those you know working out those muscles uh, and they're different muscles than than what they are for for you know developing internal combustion engine bikes it's uh it's, it's power electronics, it's software, it's all these things that are new to us. And so we've got to get started. You know, we could go on for two more hours about all of that, especially even in the last like five sentences that you hit on what's coming in Europe. I just spent a week there uh, for Motocross the Nations. I know what the, F the FIM, the FFM, the AMA, I'm pretty aware of what they're going uh, to be working with in the next few years. And like, it's the reality for all of us. And Look, there's people that are going to hear this and they're going to get all mad at me for saying it, but it's the truth. Like we can't, yep. we're not going to be lucky enough to be completely shielded from it, you know, yeah. and like good on you guys to know, Hey, we have to do this and make the alternative because motocross is still fun. Like for all the people that are going to say they'll never ride again, you'll ride at one time. You're like, oh, dude, that's a lot of fun. I'm going to get on that thing again. All you have to do is when everybody says, Oh, nobody's going to come to the races because there's no noise. Um, And believe me, I'm, I'm an engine guy. I, yeah. I, I love engines. I love the I love the full sensory overload of, of a motocross race, the sound, the smell, the whole deal. I'm going to miss that. There's just no question about that. But um, if you don't think people are going to turn out for people doing crazy things on two wheels, all you have to do is look at is look at a good downhill mountain bike race and watch 50,000 people on a mountainside watching guys making no sound whatsoever, um, ripping down the mountainside. And so I, I think there's still going to be a great fan base. I think the sport will change. Um, I'm bummed. I like, you know, I love the sound of a of an engine, especially a good two-stroke. Um, I was going to ask you about that. I know yeah. you probably have a lot of two-stroke experience that I might have to call you about on another time because, like, I mean, that's <laughs> that's huge. You probably know more about two-strokes than a lot of people do. And to have the balance of what's the benefit of a two-stroke, what's the benefit of electric, and how are they working together? Yeah. Yep. No, I, I spent, uh, I was the two-stroke guy at Ford for several years uh, when when the auto companies were actually looking really hard at two-strokes to to save package size and save weight and, and you know, rethink the the design of the automobile. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm an engine guy. And and so it, it breaks my heart in some ways to say we're going to go electric, but it's, uh, it, we can't put our head in the sand. We just, we have to keep moving forward. We have to 
maintain our competitiveness and we have to just tell ourselves and we and we did several years ago listen you know we're going to be the best at this in the world in order to do that we've got to be committed and we can't look back and and uh just keep charging because it, it the sport is what we love it it went from two stroke to four stroke i mean there was just as many people bitching back then they still are um mm-hmm. and and so you know it's just a necessary transition we have to go through yeah hey sean this was great um I have so much more that I want to talk to you about, you know, and like I said, I'm going to have to come up to Michigan or get you on the phone again, because this 45 minutes has flown by and I don't want to keep you up for too long, but uh, I will. Yeah. But for people that, uh, you know, want to find out more information, how can they get in touch with you guys or a dealer or or somebody at the track that is a Cobra rep? Yep. Cobramoto.com. You can find a dealer. There's a good dealer locator right on there. Um, Cobra motorcycles on Instagram. Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Cobra moto on LinkedIn uh and uh and our facebook page as well so it, find us find us there um give us a call if, if anybody wants to take a physical tour of the facility we welcome that uh we we, we walk you through and show you all the uh, all the gory details on on how a full-blown motocross bike is designed and manufactured in the u.s yeah that'll be good i'm gonna i think me and a lot of other people are gonna have to take you up on that offer cool thanks cool. again sean thank you Bye.